Hi everyone, Ricky Martin here. This is the Recruiter Ricky podcast, How to Get Hired. And I'm with a very, very special guest today. I'm with Craig Fenton, who doesn't have a conventional C-suite top t- job title. He is the Director of Strategy and Operations for Google UK and Ireland and many more countries to follow. Welcome to the podcast, Craig. Thanks. Thanks, Recruiter Ricky. Or can I just call you Ricky? Go for Ricky, yeah. <laughs> I think Recruiter Ricky, yeah. Go for just Ricky. Um, I think why I'm excited, we had a chat before the podcast, where I'm most excited to talk to you is your career is highly decorated. And I'm not saying that to be polite. It is. And the exposure you've had throughout the years, throughout the world to people, whether that's the culture of an environment and the people coming into that, the people setting the culture, is almost unrivaled with some that I've spoken to. So I think there's some great words of wisdom you have to share today for all those people looking to get hired. So if we could start, if you could take us back, almost imagine this, we're looking at your CV right now. If you could just talk us through a bit about your background, um, who you are, what's got you to today, I think that'd be really exciting. Yes, I, I suppose my career is decorated in the same way as a, uh, a Christmas tree would be if you <laughs> collected decorations over the year and it's sort of a hodgepodge of uh, various different things. So more what I would describe as a stochastic or random walk uh, than something that was carefully curated and, uh, and surgically executed. Uh, grew up in New Zealand, as you can probably hear already from the accent. I think you're slowly losing it, though, aren't you? Slowly. Well, I've been here 20, 21 years now yeah. in, the, in the UK, in London. Uh, so the sharp edges, perhaps, <laughs> uh, are gone. Uh, but, uh, yeah, still still kind of clinging on to it. Grew can, up in New Zealand. With that in mind, can you say the number seven to me? Because that's seven. A, seven. Oh, you've changed. Because it's seven. It's what all my family in New seven, Zealand always say. Yeah, yeah. You are. Fish and chips. And, yeah, you are becoming that. British. Yeah, getting, well, getting there. I ha- I've had to adapt to make myself understood because yeah. uh, otherwise people mistake, and it can be particularly um, uh, embarrassing for some words which mm. have uh, strong vowels. Anyway, uh, grew up in New Zealand, um, pre-internet. Uh, in fact, the internet sort of became a thing while I was still there. So it was a pretty idyllic upbringing, and in a very isolated uh, place. You had to sit on a, a plane for. Uh, eight hours before reaching somewhere other than Australia wow. that spoke a different language. And uh, that had uh, great benefits as well. You know, it's a, a great lifestyle, beaches and uh, countryside, that sort of thing. Uh, went uh, right through the state school system. Even my parents went to university, but they were you know, super supportive and, and gave me the belief that I could do uh, anything that I wanted. Ended up falling into university. And I really say that... Uh, carefully because I went to university and chose the course that I did mostly because my mate Mike did and uh, I, I wasn't giving it very deep thought at the time. I ended up doing a, uh, a Bachelor of Commerce in kind of Finance and Economics and a Bachelor of Laws as well, so a law degree. So which one was your mate doing? Was he doing both or one of those two? And I was then doing you... them both at the same time and it took me a while to work out which direction. Yeah. Some people went into accountancy, others went into law. I went into law. So my first job was as a barrister and solicitor in in New Zealand. It's a fused bar, and I was the litigation type. So I had a horse's hair wig, a a long black gown, and I used to uh, represent I think from meeting you, I don't think that would have ever jumped out to me from walking in the room. Would I say that your barrister is you? No, probably not. Thank you. Well, (laughs) I'm a recovering lawyer. I haven't practiced in quarter of a century. Yeah. uh, It was a great training ground in a way because it taught attention to detail uh, there is a sort of methodology a deductive methodology to solving a legal problem and 
the art of advocacy in the courtroom is, is really a type of selling. You are seeking to uh, persuade uh, on the basis of set of facts a, a particular uh, point of view. Uh, so it was intellectually very fulfilling at the time, actually. Uh, I, I did quite a lot of sports law, and at the time, rugby in uh, New Zealand, which is, of course, the big game, wasn't a professional sport. Uh, but as I was, uh, as I was in, the, in the profession, uh, News International stormed in uh, offering TV money, and I worked as part of the team that took that sport professional. Uh, we were losing players, actually, yeah. uh, rugby players, to league, which was already rugby league which was already professional in Australia and we cut the first deal that made uh, rugby union a professional sport and led to the NPC. So and you're Super the reason 12. why the All Blacks are still so awesome today? Uh, I think there's probably deeper reasons than, <laughs> than my contract. I think it's their ethos right is the reason right the, the no yeah. dickheads ethos which is one of my favourite things I've no, ever heard about no, culture. Absolutely sweep the sheds no dickheads yeah. uh, change the game when you're on top of the game if you haven't read Legacy by James Unbelievable. Kerr, it's, it's worth a read. I went to a talk for his recently and um the insights he's got about those players, particularly when new guys are coming in and the expectation is sat by the veterans of that team, um, is something I think every business can take into their workforce. Well, I agree. I think, you know, how, how else? You know, there must be something um, sustaining it, right? It's a, mm. This is a team from a small country of 5 million. Back then it was 3 million, uh, not all of whom play rugby. Who have stayed on top of the the world scene uh, in that sport for a hundred the best part of a hundred years? No, uh, so there's the something World Cup special there. In 2019, are they winning? Well, let's see. I think it's going to be a very good one, right? Mm. Because there's at least five five teams that could could take it. So a great tournament. I'm really looking forward. It's uh, yeah. what are we? The uh, 18th of no, uh, October today, and uh, Saturday is going to be tomorrow is going to be a big big, big day. Yeah. Ireland versus the All Blacks. Big one, big one. So let's look at it. So you've started as a barrister. You've helped to professionalise rugby in, in New Zealand and stop leaking the talent to Australia. Um, how do we find ourselves today as the Director of Strategy at Google? I mean, that's a that's a big jump, right? That's a very different tangent as well. Yeah, there's a, there's a few sort of uh, stepping stones in between. Um, at the time, I, I practised law for six years, uh, mm. so I, I was really committed to it which took me up to the late 90s. And if, if uh, for the historians amongst your listeners or watchers, the late 90s was when the internet bubble started to inflate mm. and, and these crazy companies were uh, seeking to change the world with crazy valuations and everything was changing. And I found that completely intoxicating. And I thought I'd really like to be part of that. In some way, but I didn't really know how. Right, I was a lawyer in Wellington at the time, yeah. in Wellington, New Zealand, and I knew I wanted to sort of step onto a bigger stage, get some international experience outside New Zealand. I, I, I knew I would wanted to do something in business, but I didn't really know how. So I thought, well, I'll move to the UK uh, with my girlfriend now, now my wife, and go back to university. I ended up doing an MBA at London Business School. And kind of figure it out because uh, I didn't feel like I could sort of get off the plane in, in London, yeah. you know, with that background and sort of step out into Oxford Street and declare myself to be in business. But, but what you've done there is brave, I'm not saying it to be nice, but a lot of people, when they've already committed themselves wholeheartedly to a discipline, they've studied, they've started the career, they've spent six years as a barrister, they moved to another country. Not a lot of people say, well, what am I going to do now? I'll re educate and, and further my academics and I'll look at a new career path. 
um, there's there's a big message there that a lot of people can take away that actually we can sometimes be stuck in the in the run of the mill of what we do. Um, like I'm in recruitment and I've done it for 15 years, but I don't know if I'll be in it in 15 years. I could be doing something different. And what you kind of said a moment ago is you just were open to opportunities and open to where the world takes and you were brave enough to do it. And some people don't think of it like that. You can be a success if you're brave just to jump at something when it comes in front of you and say what's the worst that will happen. Well, thanks. So yeah, I, I didn't feel brave at the time. I, I sort of had this passion. I wanted to pursue it. I suppose it was brave to become a student of a good income. Absolutely, that's and, right. And uh, live on debt for a couple of years in, in, uh, in London. But I was attracted um, by the thought of becoming something else. And I think back then it was probably not particularly normal. These days I think it's the new normal. Yeah. Right? Uh, we, we are living in this, this life where change is the only constant and we're constantly uh, reinventing ourselves for that purpose. So I'm glad I did it, and I think, you know, I, I look forward to continuing on that journey, which I hope never ends. Anyway, after the MBA, yeah. I still didn't really know what I wanted to do, so I, um, I interviewed, and most, um, most of my cohort at that time from London Business School were going into either investment banking, yeah. mostly investment banking, actually, because the school is known for its finance uh, faculty, uh, more or less the, the other sort of, let's say, 50% into investment banking, I would say 40% into management consulting, and then there was the 10% of loose cannons who sort yeah. of landed in a very uh, sort of hodgepodge of different, different things. I went into management consulting, mm -hmm. although I did have a banking offer, because I thought, well, that'll be a good opportunity to do a bit of business tourism. Yeah. I don't get the opportunity to work with different companies and in different industries, and as it transpired, in different uh, countries and different economies. And that will help me learn what business is all about and go from there. And it's not just and it's not just any management consultancy. Let, let's let's look at it. You went to Accenture, who are internationally recognised as a fantastic management consultancy. You spent a incredible sixteen years with them and across how many countries? Well, ultimately one hundred and twenty four. Uh, my final job at Accenture was running sales across a, a, a region that that they call. Europe, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East. And so just a small region then? Just, just a small just region. Just a small region. Yeah. I spent most of the time you know, in, in Europe. Uh, but um, uh, during that time, if I sort of wind the clock back, I, I had about eight different roles okay. over 16 years. So it sounds like a long period, but it felt like I was changing quite rapidly and frequently. So I, I ran sales uh, in the UK uh, for a period of time. I then became a road warrior. Okay. So I commuted... Monday to Thursday internationally every week for about 10 years. I, I had uh, two years running France and Benelux from a sales point of view. I had a couple of years in Germany. I had a couple of years in Italy, Central Europe and the Middle East. Did a long spell in Saudi Arabia in the UAE. I worked in Turkey. I worked in Russia. I did a spell in Brazil, uh, in the Nordics. So I was kind of all over the place. And uh, it was a, a wonderful ride because it's... It, it enabled me to work alongside professionals mm. and companies who were in different economies, you know, from the yeah. you know depressed economy of Greece to the powerhouse at the time of Germany and the emerging market of Saudi Arabia and the, and the UAE, uh, with different uh, cultures, 
you know, so it, it's different working in mm. Italy versus anywhere in Northern Absolutely, Europe, yep. and it's different, again, working in, in Turkey, Russia, or, or, or the Middle East. And in uh, a wide range of companies, all in the communications, tele, uh, telecommunications, uh, media and technology sectors, who were in different states of digital disruption, you know, so the internet was upon, yeah. upon them, and, and that with with all companies and individuals brings both threat and tremendous opportunity. But it, what it, what's consistent is it brings change. Yeah. And let's look at it. I think one thing that I found very inspiring when I read your profile through, we spoke about this before, is um, during your time there, you, you worked with all these different countries and all these different sales leaders and groups, but you also built leaders in your company. You coached them, you supported them, you stepped aside to take another project while others could step up. And I always think the art of great leadership is almost making yourself redundant in that role and someone else can step in and you move on. Um, in the experience that you've had identifying talent and bringing them through, whether it's Accenture or what you're doing today at Google, what's the key ingredient you look for in a person to think, this, this person's got it, they're, they're going to step up one day because find, finding what potential is, is unquantifiable. Um, how, what, how do you define potential in a person? I look mostly at attitude and character and probably second at aptitude and you know all of the more traditional measures and and the reason for that is uh, first of all things are changing constantly so what you are expert at one day will be obsolete the next and yep. you need to move on uh, so it's fleeting it's it's a perishable um, a perishable expertise so I'd look first at somebody's attitude. Do they have a, an embrace, can-do, learning attitude um, that's punctuated with humility? Because I think you have to be humble Absolutely. to continue to learn. Right? If you think you know it all, then you probably... You've plateaued, you're done. You've yeah. plateaued, you're, you're done, absolutely. And character is something that comes out usually in the bad times rather than the good times, mm -hmm. right? How do you react to failure? How do you react to a difficult sales cycle, for example, or a disappointment? And that that really is uh, is where true character sort of comes out. And uh, certainly in a sales context, you've got to have uh, you've got to have thick skin, as you know. Absolutely, yeah. I think that thick skin only gets thicker as the years go on as well. Um, but in a way, how, one of the mantras I talk about a lot in my business and with people, and I think it, it's similar to what you said, is we can almost teach any skill to a degree. Any skill can be shown to someone, but the will to actually apply it and the will to want to learn the skill and the will to continually going on is, is the magic, I think, behind any shining star. Um, and the amount of people, I'm, I, I would be interested to see your thoughts, that you can look at a CV and a person in front of you and they have their triple academics or whatever it is, they'll have their shiny PhDs, they've been to the top universities, but they're almost, when they sit in front of you, have a complete lack of humility and a complete lack of they really want that job and want to be the best in a job, but actually, what are you hiring? The CV, which is words on a bit of paper, or are you hiring the person? which is that person in an interview. I mean, would there be any examples during your time where you've, 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 you've inherited a member of staff that is, has all the, work, the bells and whistles, but actually in reality, they don't have the humility to, to develop? Oh yeah, lots. Yeah. I don't pay that much attention to CVs mm. or the traditional elements of CVs. Yeah. We're very fortunate in Google, we, we received 
four to five million CVs a year globally, and they're all pretty good, right? So you you almost don't need to to look at that um, more formal part of that. What I look for is character and personality, right? Who is this person, and what have they done actually outside work that gives me more of an insight into who they are and what they're like? So in a in a world where and this is particularly important now and going forward. In a world where change is constant, our ability to see around the corners, uh, adapt, learn new things, come up with new ideas, imagine a future, and then go create it at a macro level and a company sort yeah. of concept level or at a, a micro level, be it a process or a function, these are superpowers. And these are all different ways of describing creativity. So if you were it's a not, superhero, man, this is your power, right? The, 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 yeah, the creatives yeah. Are, are the new superheroes, I think, of, of today. And give me somebody who has been shaped by the contours of a hard life, right? the university of yeah. life, if, if you will, any day of the week, because I know that that person in a situation of change, unpredictably, uh, un unpredictability and adversity will thrive. They've done it before. And these are the skills that aren't taught yeah. at, the, uh, at the schools, typically, unfortunately, and many of the great red, red brick or Oxbridge universities. So if we're giving advice to someone, so let, let's try and put that into context. You're, you're in tune for your number two here, and the, the internal talent teams put the five people in front of you, and the CVs are flying, you've got no issue, you don't need to compare them, they're probably very similar. When you, when you talk to all five of them, how are, you, how are you finding that humility in them? How are you being able to get under their skin to see if they have been to the University of Life and they have had some knocks, and what questioning, or what are you looking for in a person that sits in front of you? We'd have a conversation, so I'd ask them a lot about you know, stuff that they do outside work I'd give them scenarios to think through okay you're in this situation this is the challenge how would you approach that which is kind of a hypothetical question it, it gives you a little bit of a feel for how they might think or attack somebody but the real depth of color I think comes from what they have done out more often than not outside work you know climbed a mountain yeah. uh, gone on a, uh, a long run learned six languages um, they're an expert cook you know, these, these give me um, indicators of, of depth that take, take me beyond the academic qualifications and the functional things that they may have done before. I think what's really interesting in that is, firstly, you, you do find the inner depth of the character more when they're talking about something they're interested in. I think and you can see someone's face, like, I mean, give you an example, you might not know I used to be a professional wrestler. I love wrestling. Stop it's one of my big really? things. Yeah, I, I might not look at it anymore, but um, I had a pathway at one point where I either could go into wrestling and I had auditions for the big leagues in the Ameri in the US, and then I had the opportunity, the investment process in the UK, and I had a decision to make: where do I go with my career? Is this like Olympic wrestling, or is it? Oh, it's the, the, the it's the um, they, it's actually called professional wrestling, which is the the TV, televised sports, WWE, really? Hulk Hogan and stuff. And a lot of the guys over there are a lot of my pals now. So um, I had a, a defining matter. But if you brought me into an interview and got me talking about that, you will see me come to life. So this is a great example, right? This yeah. were, is what we would describe it at, uh, at Google. Googleiness, right? Mm. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a different dimension to somebody's character. Did you have a, a, a sign or even that like? Not like a John Cena well, sign. What's your much. name? What so, your ironically, name? my name was Ricky Hyde. 
but which was sometimes shortened to the hype. And then my company, when I set up, was called Hyper Recruitment Solutions because the reality I was always told, if you name a firm, name it something you'll care about enough to protect your brand and look after it. And for me, those that know me will realize it. Those that don't, I'll spin hyper into some science definition of what it really means. Amazing. So, um, well, yeah, it hits off to you. Really. <laughs> I know a different dimension of you now. But, it, but it's those things. And um, I think what, you, what you've shown there is you can see me getting excited about it, talking to you. But yeah. if someone's coming into an interview, I guess it's not even to be brave. It's to be willing to talk about the things that aren't conventional and be willing to talk about things that are important to you. And um, maybe you can give me your thoughts. I believe that if you share that stuff and you don't get the engagement from the person you're interviewing with and they don't show interest i would say to the interviewee you have a decision to make do you want to work with this company that don't embrace something you care about um because those interviewers that will embrace it are ones you're going to enjoy working with every day what's your what's your thoughts on well very much so yeah, yeah. okay and um let's take a step forward um so you have essentially for 16 years and then you find yourself in a position today at google talk to me a little bit about um what you do for google and kind of what you look for in your googliness, as you say. Yeah, well, f first, first of all, um, I had a great experience at Accenture. Yeah. I, you know, I have a lot of good things to say about the company, but I felt like my uh, learning curve had started, started to plateau. They'd actually offered me, paradoxically, a global role, which was my dream role, but rather than rushing towards it, I took a step back and thought really deeply about what I was passionate and interested in. And I think you've, you've just got to follow your passion wherever that takes you. And I'm a gadget geek, you know, I love yeah. technology. I'm not a computer scientist, but I sort of understand it and its application and its possibility. And as a Kiwi who grew up in an isolated place pre-internet, I'm very attracted to uh, the yeah. idea of an open platform that gives people access and opportunity to express themselves or build a, a future, whether that be entering into business and building a micro multinational, becoming a creator and finding an audience, or just simply finding their voice and expressing uh, something that they feel uh, passionate about. I also believe we're in a moment in time in machine learning and artificial intelligence, and I kind of wanted to put myself in the center of those. So I wrote a list, it was a pretty short list, I think I had two, two companies on it, Google was one of them, and I literally Googled who runs Google and I wrote to him. And long story short is here I am, you know, luck, timing, maybe a bit of uh, qualification for, for, for the position. And I feel very fortunate to, to work where I work. The, the day job is a combination of strategy and operations. The, the title is pretty descriptive. Well, the word, I find the word strategy interesting because I think it means lots of different things to different people. How would you describe strategy for those in, in simple terms? I think it's the combination of having a, a vision so defining your future self and then having a plan of how you're going to get there. Mm. And if we think about the person, I mean, that, that, that ultimately was what you did when you went to find this job. You had your, you had your vision, I'd like to work for some of the, the real tech companies that are going in the right place and be at the center of the future. And your plan of getting there was literally to Google, Mr. Google, I'm gonna call it as Mr. Google right now, and got, got the seat at the table as a result of it. So if, you, if we think about somebody going into a process of interviewing, how can they, what type of strategies can they put out? Does it have to always be that long-term, I want to be the owner of this company, the director? Are we talking about short, medium, long-term? What, what are the type, type yeah. of? It's a really, really good question. I think 
if you're coming out, certainly if you're coming out of school or university today, it's really confusing. Yeah. It's confusing because there are so many options. Correct. And actually it can be confusing even if you're later on in your career and you're thinking about a pivot. The advice that I would give is think more about the why than the what. And what I mean by that is take yourself down a few layers. Think about the sorts of things that you get excited about, your eyes light up and you start speaking a bit faster. And you know these are good indicators that you're talking about something that you're deeply passionate about. That's a why. Uh, the what is the role that then enables you to play that out. And there are many what's that may serve a why, if you follow me. So your why, the thing that you're passionate about, is tends to be more stable and is the source of joy, the real source of joy. Joy doesn't come from title or money or the cachet of a certain brand it comes from doing something that really speaks to your passion and if you treat that as your front-end filter on anything that you apply for you know that if you land that that job that what it's going to float your boat and it's fair to say that there can be many what's on the way to that why and the why is always a, a forever serving purpose that you can never fully satisfy the why it's a it's a big objective. That is always something you're striving for. And the reason I, I ask that question is that I always think some people think when they leave you know, school, college, university, that the first job needs to be the perfect job. I think the reality is it might not be. You might not have the skill to get the job that you really want long term, but you need to maybe do multiple jobs and try multiple things, do multiple what's so that you can finally get to the why of what you're looking for. Would that be a... Yeah, that, that's true. I, I was speaking to Jamal Edwards a couple of weeks ago. He's the founder of SBTV, and he had very similar advice. You, you might need to step over a few stones in order to get to what you really want. The one adjustment I would make to that is that I don't think you should ever do something that you don't enjoy. Agreed. Now, it may not be your dream destination from a wide point of view, but it shouldn't be something that you dread. Life's too short. And I think that's it's the right thing. We, you should never be unhappy in what you're doing and unfulfilled in what you're doing. And I think you gave a really good example. To get to your end destination, it might be multiple ways. So if I want to go to New Zealand right now, I'm not going to get on a plane and get straight there. I'm going to have to choose a route, right? I'm going to have to go through multiple countries to get there. I actually went from Dubai, Sydney there. But you can go different routes. And I guess that's the point we're bringing to the table. Choose the one that will keep you happy on the pathway until you get to your end destination. And... Um, a lot of companies, I think that there's people that will be listening that, that are looking to set up a firm. I think that is the strongest message. Why does your company exist? Because the honest answer is if it's if you want to be a company that makes lots of money, you will not succeed. If you want to be the company because you want to be number one, that's not a reason to have the business. There has to be an inner purpose. But it's the same to the job seeker. You want to know your purpose. And um, I talk about this a lot. When I set up my firm, which is science recruitment, which might not sound the sexiest thing about I'm a biochemist by academics. I'm a massive nerd when it comes to, to science. And the reason I didn't do science is I hated the lab, but I didn't know my options. So why do I like it? Is I want to be able to create things and, and help people. Um, and my business puts scientists into roles. What do I do? On one hand, I place people into jobs. That doesn't sound so interesting. How I look at it is my business places people into jobs that create medicines and save lives. And that's what my business stands for. And that's the message when people work for me. I'm saying, if you want to come work for us, have a career and actually save lives, 
indirectly, and this is how we do it, I can fulfill that. But yeah. if you wanted to put people into jobs and make cash, go and work for another recruiter. You're probably not right for my culture. I'm not right for you. And I think that's the same with any business or job seeker. Well, I think, Ricky, that's a perfect description of the difference between a functional mm. um, description of a job uh, versus a purpose. And um, the one other thing I'd say, because we talked about, you know, the that the concept of you know you might need to travel there's a journey to yeah. get there the, the one thing i'd throw in there is there's no time like now right there, there's a intoxicating comfort about staring at the horizon the problem is that the horizon never gets closer yeah so if you've always wanted to do fill in the gap x y uh, z you know and that speaks to your why do it and I think when you think about it, we don't know how long our how, how long our time is in this world. I, I'm going a bit deep now, but we don't know how long we'll be here. Not I might sure. not be here next week. I really hope I am here next week, um, but I don't know. So seize the opportunity. I think we can always put a hand up with an honest mistake and say that was wrong. And applying to jobs, interviewing, you can leave the interview and say, actually, it was a mistake. That company isn't for me. I thought they were on their website. I thought they were from having their name on my CV, but actually person sat in front of me in the interview didn't really give me a nice feeling and it was a, it's a mistake if I went there so accept the fact that we'll make mistakes and move on um, what advice would you give to someone else so we've looked at if they come into an interview with you and they're looking for a job you're looking to see the humility in them and the character behind them what other advice would you give someone who's preparing today for an interview tomorrow do your homework know who you're meeting know the company if it's a company yeah. or a charitable organisation whatever the organisation is it's very, very easy for an interviewer to detect that this is a person who's opportunistically conducting an interview yep. in the hope that they might get a job, or somebody who's a deep student of the industry and of the company who's there for a, for a deeper purpose. Is there going too far in that? So what I mean by that, if someone come in and they were, could recite to you, they've looked you up on LinkedIn and looked at your team around you and they could cite everyone in that team, is that... Is a bit of social stalking there helpful to their, their knowledge of what you do and how it functions? I should clarify it. I don't really care if they don't know me yeah. as an individual. Um, what I mean is really know the industry and, and the company yeah. and the organisation more so. I think it's respectful to, to know something about Absolutely. the person that you're talking to, but my, my, uh, my point is more about the organisation. So I, for example, would ask always ask in an interview, think about our situation in the market who do you think our competitors are? What do you think some of the challenges might be? And it's super easy to tell if that's a sort of rehearsed and mm. superficially prepared answer or something that comes from a deeper place, somebody who's really, really studied and taken the time to understand the industry. I think a way to look at that is don't just go onto the About Us page of a company and they ask you about them, almost Correct. read it verbatim, word for word, actually go in there and talk broader about it. Um, what about... Um, so that's seeing that they really want to work for you and that kind of is digging back into a bit of that purpose thing again and interest as well. What else is going gonna, is gonna to help? So, okay, we'll go to the end of the interview. Let's say they conclude their interview, it's mm -hmm. gone well um, and they leave. Is there something they can do at the end just to kind of give you that last, this, this is a great person now, you know? Well, you know, asking smart questions that aren't the obvious questions, I think, that, that make the interviewer think. Uh, that's, that's good advice, yeah. and that's perhaps um, just before the end. I think it's really courteous and a mark of professionalism to follow up and say, hey, thanks for your time. Really enjoyed meeting you. Um, look forward to hearing back.
And something what, as simple as that. What I love about that is it's just it's the simple fact of manners. And I think everyone, when we're born in this world, has enough about us to say please and thank you. And that's fundamentally what we're saying. And the art of that is it, it might scare some people and is getting lost. I think people don't always thank the process, thank the person, thank, even if they're not interested to thank them. You, you never know when that door will be kept open and what for and where for you sure. might end up in the end. For sure, it's a small world, even if you don't land in that position for whatever yeah. reason, whether you get offered and you decide not to, or you don't get offered. It's likely if you're swimming in a in an, an industrial pool, you're going to come across that person at some stage. At some you know some stage. You absolutely future. will. And um, let's take it even a step forward. So you've interviewed them. They've they've made a good impression. They've shown a deeper purpose and an interest. They're respectful. They've left a good impression. They've got the job. They turn up. They're in their first week. Um, it will surprise a lot of people how some people aren't the person you thought they were when they turn up. They just somehow they're great at interviewing, but they're not so right in real life. What's the best way to make a first impression once they've onboarded with your company? I think well, if if you haven't already got the first impression, something's gone wrong in the mm. uh, in the recruitment process. Uh, but I, you know, look, I think the the advice that I give folk who join my team and, and, and Google more generally is don't do your day job for at least three months. Just take the time to absorb what's going on around you and learn. Listen, meet lots of people, understand what what's happening. Uh, so just have the humility to listen, keep a list of the things that you hear that you think, yeah. mm, that's a bit odd. Because Ultimately, you'll, you'll probably return to that list, and some of those things will be actually it did seem a bit odd, but now I understand why. In other cases, it'll still seem a bit odd, in which case, it's probably something that you want to move. We're asking them to be in, the, in that. I'm going to use my term, it's not your. We're asking to be a sponge for the first period, right? To soak everything in, retain the bits that are going to be useful to them, and help them to understand. and. I don't think you have many more opportunities like a year or two down the line to go back to day one and be a sponge again. It's the great chance for you to, to, to ask questions and never feel silly. Not that you should feel silly asking a question anyway. The worst questions asked are the ones that are never asked. Um, but be a sponge, absorb it all, um, take your time and Definitely. be respectful while doing so. Definitely, and have that humility to, to absorb. The other thing I would say is, is that as is that period progresses is develop a sense of irreverence you know a, a constructive irreverence question question well why why do we do it this way you know why not fill in the sentence how's about i'm, I'm gonna again i'm gonna throw how's about imagine you are a detective in your own in your own not crime in your own tv series and you've got to question everything that's what I mean. Me and my wife got loads of detective programs, and I always say, "She goes, who's the who's the who's the criminal in this one? Who's the who's the victim?" I'm like, question everything, and you'll find your answers. Write it all down, absorb. Um, what extra things do you think are helpful to people? Generally, we've spoken about the individual interview and in starting with the job, but if you could give any other words of advice to somebody, just as a person, to help them progress in this world, what would that be? Uh, within the day job, uh, well-being and balance is super important. Think we've come from an era, certainly in the early uh, noughties, where the sort of always on, mm. you know, long work hours, live hard, play hard mentality was lauded as a virtue. The evidence is that it's not. 
you know, all of us are at our best, we're relaxed, we're comfortable, we feel safe, psychologically safe in our environment, we're well rested, uh, we have interests outside work and, and perhaps family as well, and that all of these things coexist in, in harmony. So really invest in yourself, you're going to be much more productive if you're working seven hours a day than if you're working 16 hours a day. And there's data to back that up. That's not just an opinion. And I would say somewhat related, you know, my advice would yeah. be have a side hustle as well. Yeah. You know, develop interests outside work, whether that's a hobby or uh, a business interest or something, something different. It adds color and texture to your life. I think it does. And I love the term side hustle, by the way. I think it's brilliant. And I really do hope people do more of it. And, I think where I find your advice really comforting is you've led large, complex international sales functions for a long time. And um, sales can sometimes be seen as a higher pressure, um, longer hours, you're committed to the job workforce, that it wouldn't be unreasonable to say that you would have seen people over the years burn out in those roles. And for somebody who's seen that happening to say, look, guys, I've led these functions and you need to look after yourself. I think that's quite powerful. And, well-being, personally, I find a really hard term because it's meaning so many different things to different people. Um, and I don't know if it's a harsh question. If, if I could get you to just explain what, how you think well-being is to somebody, how would you put it in simple terms? I think it's, it's not one thing. I think it's a combination of things, and it's also very personal. So I think it's being moderate rather than extreme in your working habits. So evidence suggests that we... You know, most humans are capable of one to two hour stretches of concentrated deep work, which need to be interspersed by you know, calorie intake, yeah. going for a walk, standing up, um, so interspersed. Uh, we receive these days more information in a single day than our yeah. medieval ancestors did in a year. So it's, you know, it's we baffling. live... It's baffling, isn't it, really? It's baffling, I mean, and, and it's unnecessary as well. So think minimum viable product when it comes to communication. I think we have this tendency to over-communicate un, uh, unnecessarily and to meet unnecessarily. I mean, diaries full of, full of meetings. To arrange meetings. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of evidence that most yeah. meetings aren't very effective. Um, I think sleep is super important. So if you haven't read Matthew Walker's Why We Sleep, it's a good read. I haven't actually. Very good read. Turns out we need seven to eight hours, and people who say, yeah, I only need three hours. They're lying. They're lying. Well, they probably think they're telling the truth, but the evidence simply doesn't support that proposition neurologically. So get good sleep. Have interests outside work, right? And um, organise things in such a way where you have a, an ability to control, to some extent, what you're doing. I think stress is not a function of busyness. It's a function of lack of control. So think about how those control settings can be enacted in, in everything that you do. I also recommend you read Bruce Daisley's The Joy of Work. Uh, Bruce is the VP of Twitter in EMEA, and he wrote this fantastic book, and I, I believe strongly in everything that he says in there. And he talks a lot about emails, another one. Yeah. It's, it's an incessant, an incessantly overused tool. You see the Kiwi accent's coming out. It's there. coming through. So, you know, I, in my previous role in, in Accenture, it was really always on. And you know, I had an approval situation, as I do now. I was an approver. 
and it really never stopped. Holidays, weekends, never stopped. I've seen a different uh, mode here, and, and Google's a lot bigger uh, as a company than, than Accenture. I don't get a single email in the weekend. I put an out-of-office message on my email in the weekend. Don't expect a response. I'm spending time with my family. So I think there are tips and techniques. In summary, I would say well-being is about balance, control, and ensuring that you're able to serve the interests that you have, hopefully many of which are inside work, but some of which will be outside work as well. Thank you. And what I really like what you said, because it is in and outside of work and it's personal, I think one thing that I think is important to share if you're joining a company, yes, the company needs to be mindful of supporting you and supporting your passions and giving you the opportunity, but don't expect the company to be the one managing your well-being. It is something which is personal. It's something you have to manage yourself with their framework around them. Um, because I speak to a lot of people saying, well, what, how are they going to manage my well-being? What, what, what things have they got for me that I'm going to enjoy more so I, I have a better well-being? I'm like, it's a bigger thing than that. It's a bigger, it's a bigger internal thing than that. And take a responsibility of your well-being as much as hope the environment you're joining is set up to enable it. Yeah, I think both need to be true, right? Yeah. So definitely I agree with you, Ricky. You need to take ownership for your own well-being because it's very personal. Absolutely. And, and my, uh, what my well-being anatomy looks like is different from yours. I think that, that we as leaders and companies also have a responsibility to ensure the context is there in which that, that can happen. Good. Well, I'm going to leave us there. I think we've got loads of what we've been able to cover is some tips and tricks of interviewing, onboarding, looking after ourselves, and thinking of the bigger picture. So, all I can say is thank you very much for your time. It's been insightful. Um, I look forward to speaking again. My pleasure, Ricky. Thank you.